0: Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. Airway management is a daily occurrence in the practice of critical care. Complications associated with airway management have a potential devastating impact on patients, causing severe morbidity and mortality. In today's episode of Critical Matters, we will discuss the management of the difficult airway. Our guest is Dr. Thomas Heidegger. Dr. Heidegger is an anesthesia and intensive care physician. He holds faculty appointments as professor in the Department of Anesthesia, Spital Grabs, and Grabs, in the Department of Anesthesiology and Pain Medicine, Bern University Hospital, University of Bern, and Bern, both in Switzerland. Professor Heidegger is a renowned expert in airway management and is the author of an excellent review on the topic recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine. We are honored to have him as a guest. Thomas, welcome to the podcast.
1: Sergio, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm really pleased to join this meeting.
0: Excellent. Well, we have a a very difficult topic, like like we were mentioning, I mean, the, the, the challenges you had in putting this into a review article for the New England Journal of Medicine, but a topic that obviously is very dear to our anesthesia, our emergency medicine, and our critical care colleagues all over the world. So maybe we could start, uh, Thomas, with a definition on what is a difficult airway from your perspective?
1: Yeah that's a it's a tough question because uh, uh we don't uh, we don't agree what or uh, we don't have a stand definition of a difficult airway at uh, at this time so uh recent guidelines uh, about uh, difficult airway management uh, say that uh, if an experienced practitioner anticipates or encounters difficulty with face mask ventilation brachial intubation or supraglottic airway use or recognizes the need for an emergency surgical airway so that is a difficult airway it doesn't help us really much but we don't at the moment don't have a better definition of a difficult airway an
0: important aspect though of that definition that as you said um, although imperfect still is a good framework to start is that you really talked about Different stages in airway management, right? So a lot of people might think that the, the intubation itself is is the difficulty, but you talked about face facemask ventilation, visualization, tracheal intubation, or supraglottic management. So those four
1: are very important, right? Absolutely, absolutely, and. Uh that's a problem with some of the guidelines uh, most or the many guidelines start with a problem with uh, tracheal intubation but airway management starts before so if your patient uh, gets unconscious and then you have to manage his airway and the first the first uh, technique you normally use is mask ventilation so that's critically important uh, to uh, talk about mask ventilation before we talk about difficult intubation
0: Absolutely, and in terms of of incidents of difficult airways uh, recognizing that we have an imperfect definition, could you just make some some comments on where, where what we understand based on the literature thomas uh
1: yeah Im- face mask ventilation there are many many definitions i think one uh a very practical definition is from harm It's a harm score it's not perfect but i think for daily practice we use that in our hospital uh, uh every day uh it's four grades grade one is no problems with uh with a mask ventilation grade two is Ventilation by mask is possible with an oral airway or another adjuvant. And grade three mask ventilation is difficult, defined as inadequate, unstable, or requiring two providers. And grade four mask ventilation is impossible. Well, it's not perfect, uh, but I think it is very useful for daily practice. I think ideally ventilation should be confirmed, not only by these uh, clinical signs, but also by uh, technical signs. So, if you have a uh, capnographic tracing, you can uh, add this to define if mask ventilation is uh, works or doesn't work. So, ideal ventilation should be confirmed by an observation of a rise in the chest. That's a clinical sign. By a capnographic tracing. That's a technical sign, and by, of course, at, uh, at least uh, by an increase uh, in oxygen, oxygen saturation. So that's a combination of a technical and clinical sign.
0: Excellent. And in terms of, of, of the frequency, I know that in, in your review, you had cited that difficult face mass ventilation, which I presume would be on those grades you described, anything between 1 and 3 occurs maybe uh.
1: 1.5 to 5%. But absolutely, absolutely, that great zero is not very frequent, right? Yeah, that that's the that's the main problem and the main challenge. Fortunately, the the real difficult airway is a rare phenomenon. That's that's fortunately it is a rare phenomenon, and so it is also. It's therefore as a consequence it is very difficult to predict a difficult airway in beforehand. Absolutely absolute uh, the event itself the difficult airway is a rare event so it's it's always uh, even all those tests uh, a combination of tests to predict the difficult airway will finally more or less fail because the event itself the difficult airway is a rare event so the prevalence in all those tests the prevalence is the most important thing to say uh, if if a combi- a test a single test or a combination of tests is uh, can predict um, a real difficult airway that means that you have always be prepared that you will can always be encountered with a difficult airway even though you don't expect you don't expect it or your tests say this is uh, not a difficult airway uh, but in fact it can not it can be a difficult one. You don't know it in beforehand, except you have a, of course, you have a patient with a limited mouth opening, absolutely patient with absolutely morbid obesity, and so on. It's an anticipated difficult airway situation.
0: And I think that's a very important point that not only applies to difficult airways, but I believe it applies to how we assess all sorts of tests in clinical practice, which is we don't usually account for the real prevalence of what we're looking for, and we forget that any test, no matter how good, performance will be impacted by that, right? So you had commented in in your paper the, the, the importance of this in difficult airway prediction in terms of positive predictive value and negative predictive value and how that can sometimes, I mean, influence what a false positive looks like and what a false negative looks like.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So there's a, a wonderful publication. I referenced this in in my journal. It's uh, from Long or Lung. I don't uh, don't know how to pronounce it correctly. It's the understanding sensitivity and specificity with the right side of the brain. That's a fantastic article to explain uh, terms like sensitivity, specificity, positive or negative predictive value. So it's a fantastic paper. I can really recommend to read that. And and from a clinical perspective, uh, ultimately with difficult airway,
0: Thomas, if you anticipate a difficult airway and you're prepared and you don't find one, there's no problems and that usually is great. However, if you're not prepared, you didn't anticipate a a difficult airway and you get in that situation, it can
1: have devastating consequences for the patient. Absolutely. I think that's the key point. You have always to be prepared. to face with a, uh, we said, I an mean, unexpected difficult airway. Um, yeah, well, that's, that's that's really the key message. That's a key message. A bit, uh, uh, beyond that, yeah, of of course, you need the skills uh, to do that. Uh, that's another problem. But uh, being prepared to manage an unexpected difficult airway is essential. So we 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 talked about a,
0: a little bit about the incidents, and like you said. Uh, impossible ventilation or failed tracheal intubation really occur at a very, very low percent, way below 1% of all airways. Uh, I do have a couple more questions on incidents before we move a little bit forward. Um, what's the role of visual laryngoscopy? That is something that obviously uh, when I trained, uh, we didn't have it available. Now I have it available for for every airway I do in the, in the, in the ICU. And I just wanted to to get a feel of what the literature Really tells us or doesn't tell us yet about the use of video
1: laryngoscopy, especially in the ICU. Uh, data are still conflicting, uh, and uh, uh, that's the reason why I, I referenced some of the some of these uh, papers. Uh, and you see, this is there is no consensus. We have some papers who uh, really prefer. Video laryngoscopy; uh, it is much better than conventional laryngoscopy. Other papers just say the different, uh, just say the opposite, uh, and uh, the Cochrane review doesn't confirm that video laryngoscopy is really better. It is; uh, it shows us that uh, the number of intubation attempts m- maybe can be lowered. Uh, that's another topic because you shouldn't do. That four or five or six times, Uh, I think what video laryngoscopy is really superior to conventional laryngoscopy is in two things. It is first of all uh, you can uh, you can watch what the other colleague or your nurse is doing. So and on the other side, uh, if you are teaching in a teaching hospital, others can watch what you are doing as an expert. So in teaching and and helping juniors, it is absolutely fantastic. In management of the unexpected airway, in many cases, you have a better view than than uh, with conventional uh, laryngoscopy. I think that's a matter of fact. In very very rare cases, uh, it is better uh, looking at the conventional side than on the video laryngoscopy. But this is, was a result of uh, I think the first large multi-center study. Uh, from Europe and United States, uh, Marshall Kaplan, I think was the first author published in, uh, in an American journal. And we we uh, we participated in this study at my former hospital, and we had some cases where we we did see the glottic uh, conventionally, but we didn't see anything on the screen. But normally it's just the opposite. You see it much better on the screen than conventionally, in a difficult situation. But what we had what we also have learned is that laryngoscopy is not the same as intubation, and that's I think that's an important thing, an important step in our mind uh, by in, uh, by using video laryngoscopy instead of conventional laryngoscopy. And uh, even though some colleagues don't like to hear that, but uh, it is not a panacea for everything for every airway situation. Because if you have a patient with a limited mouth opening, you can't use a laryngoscope, And if you have a patient with a limited neck mobility, it doesn't help you really very much. So there are situations where you need a different uh, technique to manage this airway. So it is, of course, uh, something which supports us, and it is uh, it is a milestone in the development of airway management, but it's not a panacea for all difficult airway management situations.
0: And I think that that's an important point, right? I mean, it's a step forward, and it's a great tool to have in, in, our, in our tool belt, but like you said, there will be situations where you will need to recur to other tools, and we'll talk about some of those further down in our conversation.
1: Yeah. Absolutely, and uh, please let me add something more, uh, Sergio uh there's a special a special situation with the uh, hyperangulated with ringoscope i mean there you get a fantastic view with those devices but uh, the the problem you, ha- you you must be very skilled with this technique that you can manage the airway so the problem you see that you fail is uh, something we can really recognize quite often so if you're really an expert it will it does work of course but if you don't, uh, don't know those tips and tricks with uh, using a, a hyperangulated angulated laryngoscope, it is really difficult to get the airway managed.
0: Yeah, I agree. The, the other question I had in terms of, uh, uh, of the incidence of difficult airways is, is if you could comment on two factors uh, that, and how they relate to incidents. One is patient population, and specifically uh, in females, OB versus non-OB. And the other one is location, OR versus
1: emergency department versus ICU. Okay, uh, let me start uh, with the second one. Uh, the NAP4 uh, clearly showed that the problems with airway management in the ICU and the, in the emergency department are happens more more often than in the OR. So that's a matter of fact. Difficult airway management is absolutely uh, present. In the ICU and the emergency department, it's, it happens uh, more often than in and in the OR. So that's that's a matter of fact. All those studies confirmed, and, and the largest one is, uh, of course, is Net Four. And uh, the second one, or your first question, is uh, obese versus non-obese, and uh, all those studies uh, confirm. It's not only Net Four; it's only the the close claims analysis that uh, obese patients are more frequent to have a difficult airway. And if you have a patient with a morbid obesity, so it's a BMI of 40 or more, um, difficult airway situations arises four times more than in the non-obese. So obese and especially morbid obese patients are a population uh, we are faced with difficult situations quite more often than in the normal. Population.
0: So I think it's important to note for our listeners, especially since most of our audience, I presume, practices an intensive care unit, is that the frequency of these difficult airways is significantly higher in emergency situations, either in the emergency department or in the ICU as compared to to the to the OR. I would like to move forward and talk a little bit about prediction of a difficult airway. We did talk about the false positives, false negative, and, that, and those consequences, and really establish established why that's so important. But if you could maybe give us a little bit of your take on how to best evaluate the airway, and that might be very different depending on the time you have in an elective case versus obviously an emergency. But also, I know that you talk about predictors of difficulty, Thomas, in terms of anatomical, physiological, and t- contextual. If you can just expand a little bit on on this area.
1: Yeah. Well, even though we can't really predict a different airway, we should do that because otherwise you you don't forget the simple things, uh, asking your patient to open his mouth or to to move his neck forward and backward. So you should do that. And we personally do um, uh, the thyro-mental distance and upper upper lip bite test. Uh, So all those things, we do that. And uh, we also measure the BMI and so we we don't do things you can't you can't read in 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 this paper so we we do all those things but uh we don't do it's every every special uh test so big this you can't do that in every day's practice so we do that and uh, i think really important is also the history so does this patient has already an intubation a couple of years ago. Were there any problems? We now have uh, electronic protocols, so we can uh, go back to the uh, to the past looking uh, whether any uh, technical problems with intubation and so on. And so you have to be alert to do that. Even even though you know it's not perfect, you shouldn't forget to do that because it is a memnotechnic Thing that you ask the patient to open his mouth, to pull out his tongue, and so on. So that's a very practical answer, uh, not very, but very scientifically based, because all those tests uh, do have a low positive predictive value. Absolutely. But nevertheless, do that. There's an excellent paper. Is such a test? Um, uh, worthwhile issue, issue or not, from Steve Yantis was a former editor-in-chief of Anesthesia from UK. It's a fantastic paper. I can really recommend that. Okay, we'll put that on the show links.
0: In, in terms of uh, a, of other predictors of difficulty from an anatomical, physiological, and contextual standpoint, could you just comment on some that you think are, are, are most important?
1: Yeah, uh, I just mentioned I think there was the anatomical predictors. Uh, Limited mouth openings, uh, uh, having a beard or not. uh, Obesity, of course, are the uh, anatomical predictors. The physiological predictors are uh, beside, for example, uh, a full stomach, is uh, something with uh, your oxygen saturation rapidly decreases and your your onset of apnea uh, starts very, very, uh, very fast because of reduced functional residual capacity. It's uh, a pregnant patient or a patient uh, with a full stomach and so on, Uh, or a patient is a a sepsis, uh, if the oxygen consumption is much higher than in the normal patient. So I think that's the most important physiological parameters. And also important are the contextual parameters. Because if you are inexperienced in a technique or inexperienced um, uh, in an exper- unexperienced area, you don't have enough personnel to support you uh, in this special situation. Or the patient, you can't do an awake intubation because the patient doesn't tolerate it and say nothing about that. So. Uh, if the situation doesn't allow you to do that, what you really want to do or you should do, or you're not experienced, or what uh, was a result from NEP 4 regarding management of the anticipated uh, anticipated difficult airway uh, and fiber optic intubation. There were two things that's really worth mentioning. The first one was that some of the colleagues recognized that this situation uh, renders a fiber optic intubation and they didn't do that. Because of two reasons. First, they uh, they didn't do it because they didn't uh, weren't available to do to manage this technique because they had no skills, or they tried to do a fiber optic intubation but it failed because they had no skills. So uh, that's I think that's a contextual issue. You should do something. You know that you should do fiber optic intubation, but you don't do it because you Are not skilled with this technique or you do it but your skills are not enough to manage this airway. So the contextual issues are I think an important point uh, in those predictors. So prediction is very very important even though we can't really predict a difficult airway situation.
0: Absolutely I think I hope I could
1: get it across. uh, Yeah yeah. yeah.
0: like Neil Bors would say right the pilot prediction of the future that's very difficult to do right. (laughs) And I think that, uh, Absolutely. Um, but, <laughs> exactly. But, the, but I think the exercise, like you mentioned, of always being ready and thinking ahead of time when we have the time and uh, having that, uh, that discipline of evaluating the airway and understanding, because um, when you find that your assessment suggests a difficult airway, there's really no reason for you to be unprepared. Right. So you Absolutely. should be prepared. Absolutely.
1: And Absolutely. the problem
0: is that you might think it's an easy airway and then get into trouble. So the bottom line is you should be prepared as well. <laughs> and I think Absolutely. That that's really Absolutely. the message yeah. that we'll, we'll try to get get along. So we could move on, uh, uh, Thomas, and talk about the management of the difficult airway. And uh, uh, many guidelines and your review have separated this into unanticipated difficulty versus anticipated difficulty, and that might give you different different options of a different kind of roadmap to follow. Uh, considering that the vast majority, in some studies, over 93, 94 percent of difficult airways are unanticipated, why don't we start with how you would manage the unanticipated
1: difficult airway, especially in the ICU? I think it's doesn't really make a, a large difference. So if you if you get the patient unconscious and then you you have troubles with uh, face mask ventilation, if you do that, and when in ICU, it is a uh, you won't maybe you do a rapid sequence induction. So we maybe we could talk about that a little bit later. But if you try to ventilate this patient by face mask, and you can do that. So then you have time to think about okay I will conventionally intubate intubate them with the uh, laryngoscope or a video laryngoscope but if you have trouble with face mask ventilation uh, then you have to decide can uh, is this can I oxygenate this patient yes or no if no you don't have a lot of time, especially on the ICU because those patients have reduced, most of them have reduced functional uh, residual capacity. Oxygen consumption is much higher than in the normal patient. So you have really uh, very quickly an immediate emergency uh, situation, uh, cannot oxygen situation. So I think you should always be prepared to uh, to perform uh, emergency front of neck access in the ICU much quicker uh, than uh, in the OR. If you can oxygenate the patient, then you have some options. You can try a supraglottic airway. First of all, of course, you will try to intubate this patient, and then you can try it a second time. Then you should ch- choose maybe the operator or uh, the, the, the laryngoscope to a video laryngoscope or in ICU, I would recommend if you are firm with that and if you're familiar with that and if you have enough experience, uh, the mm-hmm. guidelines, the new guidelines from the Canadian colleagues, they recommend using video laryngoscope, video laryngoscope as the first technique. Um, if you're experiencing that, that's important. So uh, these are the options. The, the uh, most important decision you have to make is can you oxygenate patient, yes or no? Yeah, and
0: I think that what you talked about two very important topics that I would like to dig in a little bit deeper, Thomas. The first one is if you are in a can't can't ventilate, can't intubate, can't oxygenate situation in the ICU, um multiple studies, especially looking at close claims and evaluating Cases that went wrong suggest that delays in doing a front of neck surgical airway is a big problem. Could you talk a little bit about that first
1: absolutely absolutely That's, uh, i mean you, you might know the case of uh, of Elaine Bromley, for example this was a, the wife uh, her her husband was this pilot, and this was a uh, you can uh, find it in the internet uh, the problem there was this was a, a lady with a little bit of limited movement in the neck. They couldn't manage this airway and this this wife uh, finally died and there were two, two ENT surgeons and two anesthetists on the scene and they couldn't manage uh, this airway. They, they were paralyzed and they did the wrong decision. They tried to do a tracheostomy instead of uh, a cricothyrotomy. Uh, so being paralyzed in such a situation uh, is something uh, we can, we we know that from cases uh, which uh, which you are informed. Um, that's one thing. And the other thing is uh, you don't know what to do. Uh, taking, taking a knife or taking a A needle uh, and doing that not only not only okay I theoretically know what to do but in the situation I don't do that because uh, I'm I'm getting paralyzed so I think that's and the second one is um, uh, that you don't uh, accept that you that you will lose this patient if you don't Make this step now. So, so okay, you should come communicate with the team. I can't oxygenate this oxygenate this patient. Okay, prepare the phoner material, and we make a, a final a final step, uh, final additional uh, attempt in intubation or in face mask ventilation or in placement of a supraglottic airway. And if it doesn't work, we then perform a front-of-neck access. So and that's the problem we know from NEP4 and from other important studies. Getting paralyzed, waiting, uh, waiting on, uh, too long until you, you do this step and the patient is, is, uh, is almost is in a dying situation and you are too late. That's Absolutely. one thing. The other thing is is the skills. You don't have the skills, but it it is very difficult to get the skills in uh, for uh, front of neck access. So you, you have to get that in in workshops, uh, cadaver workshops, and so on. Yeah, but that's the only thing you can do.
0: Yeah, and and, and when you think about it from from a purely uh, motor cognitive or motor motor skill, it it probably is in. A, an easier technique to do a crike via a scalpel thumb bougie tube right than it is to do a lot of the other things that we do but like you said the difficult part is that it's something that we don't encounter in our practices with any frequency and when we need to do it we don't feel ready so the only way is through simulation either cadavers or, or things but it's a skill probably worth having and uh, I doubt that there's a lot of people who've done like tons of these. Right, just because it's not something that's very, very frequent.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. You know that uh, the difficult air so- society from the UK recommends always a scalpel, uh, bougie tube technique. Uh, colleagues from other countries say if you are experienced in a uh, in a needle cricothyrotomy, you can use a needle, can use this technique as well. Uh, I agree, um, but. If you have troubles with identifying the the weight, uh, I would also recommend a scalpel bougie uh, tube technique. So you have to be familiar with this scalpel bougie tube technique yeah
0: and and the second question I wanted to ask uh, about when we talk about management yeah, before we we dive into some uh, some more details was um, you did talk about there is a right number of attempts. That we should try, but there's two things I want you to to, 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 to talk a little bit more about, Thomas. One is um, what's the right number of attempts of endotracheal intubation and what are things that we should try to do to make them a little bit different? Because if we just do the same thing over and over again, obviously that's not likely to, 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 to lead to a different outcome. And the second is the avoidance, and that's something we might talk later in human factors, of perseveration, which is something that I've seen a lot of colleagues fall yeah. into.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's an important point. I think that's one of the most important points. Uh if you have a situation you you can oxygenate a patient, so you can ventilate it by face mask or a superclouding airway, but you can't intubate this patient. And but the situation is stable. So then you're in a situation where you can say, okay, stop and think, what should we do next? But if you try them a third or a fourth or a fifth time, then situation is going to become worse. So the I think more, more or less all guidelines recommend not more than three attempts. Then you should change the operator and also the technique. Some say but after two attempts, uh, the newest Canadian guidelines say a maximum of three attempts. The dust guidelines also uh, recommend maximum three attempts. So okay, I think we can agree and say okay. two. And maximum of three attempts, then you should change the operator and should change the technique. If you if you started with a conventional uh, intubation technique, I think there's a really good reason to say, okay, we, we go for the next step with a video vid- ringoscope, or what we do in our hospital, because we have a lot of experience in fiber optic intubation. We do an oral fiber optic intubation with a slit or a pharyngeal airway. I think that's a, a brilliant, very easy technique. Uh, I think that's those, those are the two options if you have to intubate the patient. One, mm-hmm. the other thing is, okay, do we have to intubate this patient really? And say, no, maybe we can go with a supraglottic airway. Or uh, if the third attempt or the fourth attempt with a different operator also fails. And you can still oxygenate the patient Then say, okay, stop and awake the patient. That's not possible in the ICU. So it's, it is, I think it's much trickier to, to uh, airway, manage, airway management done in the ICU than in the OR. Because the option of awaken the patient. If you have an emergency intubation in the ICU, that's not really an option. I also, I also mentioned that in the article. So that's not an option in the emergency situation in in, in the ICU. It's an option in the OR. So uh, you have to really be prepared if your first technique fails.
0: Yeah, and and I think that it's just to, to to review in terms of if if, if you are in the ICU, and like you said, we don't usually have that luxury of not not waking up the patient, because usually we're in an emergency situation where we have decided that this patient needs to be intubated, right? But if you do a first attempt and you have poor visualization, have difficulty, reposition of the neck, um, better sedation, neuromuscular paralysis, if you can ventilate, um, uh, right, are are good things to do. Changing, like you said, from conventional to a video, considering using a fiber optic, if, if that's what you have, are all things that, 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 that would help. Uh, are there any other uh, tricks that, that you might suggest? Um, uh, I know some people like to use a bougie sometimes, but that's more when uh, it could be helpful. Any other suggestions from your standpoint or from the guidelines, Thomas?
1: Well, I would like to answer that in a more principled manner. So I think you should, in such a situation, you should always use a technique uh, or an instrument you are familiar with in daily practice. I would never use a new device. I have never used that before. So I, we in our hospital and in, in Switzerland uh, and Austria very rarely use a Bougie, for example. Uh, whereas uh, in the UK, the Bougie is, I think it's the best friend of the uh, anesthetist in the UK. So they, of course, will use a Bougie. So, we are familiar with fiber optic intubation, especially in our hospital. So uh, I would use, always go for a fiber optic intubation if I can't manage this airway conventionally or with a wheeler v- ringoscope.
0: Okay. So Excellent. be
1: familiar with that in in the emergency situation as well. And don't use a technique for the first time in that in such a situation.
0: Yeah.
1: That's my key message. And I think
0: it's an important one that the best, that there is no perfect tool Everything has a place and, and, and a role, and at, at the end of the day, uh, the best tools are the ones that you are m- m- more comfortable and have the greatest expertise with. So it's important to just, as a, as a physician, to learn the tools that you have available, become proficient with them, and use them in the best way in these situations. Absolutely. Now, we can talk a little bit about the anticipated difficult airway. And like you said, this is more of a, a lot of times might be in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the ICU if you have a very obese patient, you're anticipating you might have more support and more people ready, but also in the OR, I mean, you have a little bit more options, but are there any things that you would wanna add in terms of tracheal intubation while the patient is awake when that is possible and maybe airway management of uh, the obese patients that we didn't cover yet?
1: Yes, yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, management of the anticipated airway. way, I think most colleagues will, will get the patient unconscious also in this situation, uh, if they um, believe they can oxygenate this patient after he is unconscious. Uh, I mean, this decision is a subjective decision and you don't know Beforehand, if this is the right decision, uh, there are other, I think, uh, uh, other philosophies as well. So, in my former hospital, uh, we had a very strict, and I also use that in my hospital, not so strictly, but uh, still in a very similar fashion. If you have a patient with a with a for a BMI over 35 and additional risk factors for difficult airway situation, for example, uh, no teeth or beard or something like that, uh, or uh, neck to neck uh, circumference is, is, uh, is very large, then we always do a fiber optic intubation. Um, the term awake intubation, I think, is a bit, a little bit a misleading term, because in most cases, it's not really an awake intubation. Most patients are sedated, more or less, some patients are sedated. It's something similar, very similar to uh, to uh, general anesthesia, uh, and there are different techniques how to do this. I think very rarely it is really done awake. Uh, so this needs time and needs a lot of experience. And most of the ca- most cases are done in a conscious sedation technique. We that's one technique. Uh, uh, we use a, a two-step technique. We place the scope in an awake patient. Uh, patient is really awake. We do a, a, a local anesthesia uh, for the nose uh, and uh, a transcrique puncture. And then we place a bronchoscope and then we, we start anesthesia until the patient is unconscious and then we, uh, we thread the tube over the scope. So it's a two-step technique. Uh, patient placement of the scope in the wake patient, but advancing the tube in the anesthetized patient. And we mm-hmm. performed this technique for over 30 years, and I have experience in uh, thousands of patients with the, this technique, but it's not an awake technique. Um, yeah, that's what I can say. So I think the term awake intubation is a little bit misleading, but it's uh, we don't uh, read uh, really a lot of that in the literature, interestingly.
0: Interesting. Yeah, and, and I think that also that type of even two-step technique in a situation in the ICU where you're really needing to intubate in an emergency might be more difficult to to, to get ready, right? So you might not have Absolutely. the luxury yeah. of time for that.
1: Yeah. Well, we do that this fiber optic intubation in the meantime very quickly. So uh, we don't inform our surgeons that we do no fiber optic intubation because it is uh, integrated in every in daily practice. So we don't need more time to do a fibrotic intubation than a conventional one.
0: Okay, excellent. And uh, another topic that that is uh, very important to, to this whole conversation, Thomas, is extubation of a patient with a known or predicted difficult airway. And this is something that happens in the ICU. We might have a patient who came to us through the OR and it was a difficult intubation, or for other reasons, uh, we anticipate a difficult airway if we were to extubate the patient any suggestions on how to handle this in the icu
1: yes absolutely because this is uh, this topic of extubation is uh, a little bit forgotten uh, during airway management but it is uh, it is uh, it is very important uh, not only in the icu also in the or but i think uh, more it's more critical in the icu and indeed uh, i think about a third of all the cases happened at the end of the surgery or at uh, extubation in the ICU. So it is absolutely uh, a, a very important part of airway management. Well, the key question is very simple. Uh, the key question is, is it safe to, re- to remove the tube? So if you say yes, so uh, patient is, is awake, patient can manage his airway, without any support, then you can remove the tube. If you say no, you have to either postpone the extubation or you have to perform a tracheostomy. Uh, And this question is is very important. Um, There are, of course, uh, some supporting techniques to manage extubation in a patient where you're not really sure whether extubation whether airway situation works after the extubation and sometimes it's uh is it always a situation okay now we know it because it's a, a hindsight bias so one technique which uh we regularly use not only for the difficult extubation part but also for changing a tube for example from nasal to oral or from oral to oral, is that we use an exchange catheter to support the extubation. If you have a problem, you can re-advance the tube over this catheter.
0: And I think that, that the message really here is clear in terms of we shouldn't only be assessing for difficult airways when we're putting tubes in, but we should be thinking about this in patients when we're deciding to remove endotracheal tubes in the ICU. And like you said, I mean, that, that first fork is, do I feel it's safe or not? And if it's not, can I postpone it? Or do I need to go to a definitive or more definitive solution like a tracheostomy? But like you said, this is not something that we should do hastily and uh, if we, we are concerned or we don't know. Plan, have the appropriate team there supporting, doing it at the right time of the day. A tube exchanger is a great way when there's when there's doubt. And, uh, and these are, again, it's more about planning and having that foresight of uh, of this could be a problem.
1: Absolutely yes absolutely because it's always it's a it's always a, as you already mentioned it's always a planned procedure. Excellent. So I would like to 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 close
0: uh, the the topic of, of the airway with a little bit of discussion on human factors. I know that in the anesthesia world human factor engineers is are are, are big I think that this is something that more and more we're trying to bring outside of the OR to other areas. But clearly there are human factors that are involved in airway management. And I wanted to know if you could just maybe talk a a little bit about some of them. We did mention some of them, but we can kind of reiterate some some that are important. Maybe start with situational awareness.
1: Absolutely. absolutely. I think uh, we mentioned it as you already said uh, several times. The situational awareness is is uh, really important, uh, and that's something I think have to do with what, also with experience. So I think as an some someone who is uh, doing airway management should do that on a regularly basis because you see those cases and you have so heavier uh, sometimes a smell uh, of a difficult situation and uh, you sometimes anticipate a problem. Uh, uh, That's the one thing, and the other thing is situational awareness. Okay, now we have a problem, and communicate that you have, that we have a problem. Prepare the next step uh, immediately. Uh, So, uh, one uh, good friend of mine is Professor Richard Cooper from Toronto. wrote an excellent article on, on that. Always plan uh, if, you, if your plan fails. So plan of failure of your plan. Uh, and if you are in such a situation, okay, uh, realize that situation, communicate it with your team and uh, don't get paralyzed. So I think that's the important things uh, around situation awareness.
0: Absolutely. And we also talked about failure of judgment and you've discussed them, but I, I just wanna reiterate, synthesize for our listeners that the two things that seem to be correlated with poor outcomes and difficult error situations are perseveration when we keep doing the same thing and do not move to the next step, which is part of the situational awareness. But it's something that happens to all of this and it's that I think sunken cost bias, right? We, I'm gonna get it the next time and you keep working on the same thing and you get into trouble. And then number two, delays in surgical airways. So I just wanted to kind of remind our audience. The last thing in terms of human factors, Thomas, are team factors and communication.
1: Any, any words of advice there? Well, uh, I just mentioned that. I think uh, if you anticipate uh, a difficult situation or maybe before you start, you should think about what are you doing if your plan A, plan B, plan C fails? I mean, airway management is always is a strategy. A strategy is a, a steps of plans. What are you doing? So as just mentioned, plan for failure of your plan and communicate that uh, with your team. Uh, so I'm, I'm a great fan of having nurse anesthetists uh, or uh, experienced personnel in the ICU. What are what what will we do if you if we can't manage this airway and uh, uh, we communicate that before we started I mean that's that's obvious but it's obviously it doesn't happen very frequently yeah. Uh, so yeah I mean it it, it, it is it is simple uh, if we discuss here but obviously uh, in daily practice, it is very often not performed, absolutely. unfortunately. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think that these these pre pre procedure right huddles, where we actually talk about the plan, but also talk about, like you said, and, what's plan B and plan C, so everybody understands, is very important.
1: Uh, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and the, maybe 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 uh, uh, add to uh, one other point. So. Um, Many many years ago, there was a fantastic article in the BMJ on 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 safety. And uh, what what I have learned, or that we should have learned from that, is so if if you are in a critical situation, the most experienced person at the scene should clearly say what we should should have to do. That's not the time to be very nice to every in the in the scene. So you need uh, very clear decisions and say okay this is what we do now and i i'm the most experienced here and i say we do this and we do the next step we do that yeah. that's i think that's when I mean, if all all are nice together to each other but nothing is done the patient will die yeah
0: and and i think another important aspect of communication in an emergency that's worth um commenting thomas is that especially in the ICU when things are going in the wrong direction. um, If you as the leader do not designate a specific person to do certain things and just say, we need to do this, nobody will do it. So for example, if you need help from anesthesia, unless you are to say, Thomas, call anesthesia. If you say, can we call anesthesia? Everybody assumes that everybody else else is going to do it. And a lot of times it it just delays what's going on. So I think being very deliberate in, in assigning tasks and next steps is also very, very critical during during an emergency.
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: Thomas, we, we'd like to, to close uh, the the discussion with a couple of questions that are unrelated to the clinical topic we just discussed. Would that be okay? Yes, of course. So, the first question relates to books and i was wondering are there any books uh, or particular books that have influenced you the most or that you have gifted most often to others
1: yeah that's an interesting question i i have uh, uh yes i have two two things i would like to say the first is um i to my junior doctors uh when they come in my department they um they uh i give them a, a present And that's West's Respiratory Physiology, The Essentials. That's a fantastic book about respiratory physiology for everyday practice and also for for their exams. And from my personal view, but uh, my favorite book from the last years, besides some crimes, is, um, and I'm sure you know that, it's from Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow. That's a wonderful book. I really like that, and I have read them two times, uh, and I can really recommend this book to everyone. And I think there is also a relationship to error management. There are things, are situations where you have to react immediately. Then you don't have to, don't have enough time to think. Okay, the next step uh, we are doing uh, on the next day, so we have to do it very quickly but if you have time stop and think so that's that i think thinking slow and thinking the different options but it's a combination of thinking fast and slow in uh, with every advantages and disadvantages of both uh, of both uh, pathways
0: absolutely and i think that both bo- both recommendations are phenomenal i do believe especially it, true for all of us, but but also in particular, I think some of our younger colleagues, um, the value of understanding physiology, I think, uh, is sometimes uh, underemphasized, right? So clearly, understanding physiology is very important and can and can help us. And West is a great place to start. And um, uh, hard to argue with Daniel Kahneman, obviously, uh, the, one of the fathers of behavioral uh, economics and really uh, studying judgment, right? And uh, thinking fast Absolutely. and slow, I think, is exactly uh, what we're talking about today. Developing the skills so that we can do our thinking fast better, but having the ability to recognize when the situation calls for a pause and for thinking slow, what's the next step. So clearly, I will link Absolutely. both of those. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you, Thomas, um, it's funny that you mentioned thinking fast and slow. Uh, obviously, a book that I had enjoyed thoroughly, but I'm currently reading a, a book called Noise, which is Daniel Kahneman's last book that just came out. So I highly suggest that, that you pick it up. You will, you will love it. And it's about errors in our judgment. So it goes beyond just talking about cognitive biases and talks about the concept of noise and how to reduce noise in our, in our judgment. So I think that a great compliment to, to thinking fast and slow.
1: Oh, that's great. That's great. I've already bought this book, Noise, but not not yet read it. <laughs> You'll you enjoy it. I'm halfway
0: through and I, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Um, okay, I look forward to reading it. Uh, the second question is: What do you believe to be true in medicine or in life that most other people don't believe or don't act like they believe?
1: Uh, well, I'm not sure whether most other people don't believe this, but in in my life as a as a head of a department, there are at least, I think, two things that are worth mentioning. The first one is, uh, I think, treat everyone as you would like to be treated yourself. I'm not sure, but I think it's from from Confucius. Uh, That's quite important to say, uh, not only for the head of the department, I think for your life as a whole. And the second one, uh, as a head of a department be available for your employees uh, especially if in rainy days that's that's absolutely important i
0: agree and i think that there, there are two things that um, like you said uh, on a conversation like this we, we we all agree right but then on the day-to-day sometimes people uh, forget or don't act like they really believe it so i think they're, they're two very important uh, tidbits for all our ICU uh, clinicians who are one way or the other leading a team at that time so so those are very valuable and and the last and closing question uh, Thomas relates to is there anything that you would want every intensivist who's listening to us to know it could be a fact a quote or just something related to what we discussed today
1: okay yes yes uh, I think it's a um, uh, a summary of that what I said is a uh, be familiar and maintain your competence with uh, some of those airway techniques. Uh, it is, it starts with face mask ventilation, superglottic airway placement, tracheal intubation. I think with video rangoscopy, you should be familiar with fiber optic intubation and with an infraglottic access. That's the, sec- the first one. The second one, have a strategy for your airway plan So I would like to quote my friend, Richard Cooper, always have a plan if your plan fails.
0: And I think that that's a perfect place uh, to stop, Thomas. It was a a joy to talk with you. Thanks for sharing your expertise. We will link a lot of the articles that we reference and definitely your review article uh, to the show notes so people can find them. And uh, I look forward to having you back on the podcast to discuss uh, this and other topics again.
1: Oh, Sergio, thank you so much for inviting me. It was a great pleasure to talk to you. I hope I, hope I could uh, get my, my message across. Uh, uh, you know that uh, my, t- my mother tongue is not English, it's German. Uh, but it was a great pleasure for me to talk to you. Thank you, thank you so you very much. much.
0: Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sound's transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.